Hello there. Welcome to the Herbcast, the podcast from Herbal Reality, delving into the plant-powered world of herbalism. So do you know your echinacea from your eleutherococcus or your polyphenol from your polysaccharides? Whether you're a budding herbalist, an inquisitive health professional, or a botanical beginner, Herbcast is here to inform and inspire you on your journey to integrating herbs in our everyday lives. So settle down, turn us up, and let's start today's episode of the Herbal Reality Herbcast. Joel, it's just great to be with you. I've been looking forward to uh, this conversation for a while, and Charles Buck is a very experienced uh, Chinese medicine practitioner, one of the founders in the UK, you could say, of acupuncture and herbal medicine, and uh, an author and an educator. And I've been a big fan of listening to some of your talks over the years and your teachings, Charlie. So um, it's great to have you here. Thanks for Thank joining us at the, at the Herbcast. So um, we're going to talk about your love of, of Chinese medicine, really, today, and uh, weave some of your experience into the, into the chat. So I'd just love to hear what you appreciate about Chinese medicine from the clinical point of view and lifestyle point of view. Right. Well, um, I trained in science originally, um, but somehow got lost and drifted off sideways into Chinese medicine. This was the 1970s where I found that my hair grew a lot and uh, my trousers got wider at the bottom. And uh, I started being interested in Oriental things like Buddhism and Taoism. And uh, initially it was a it was a kind of romance of the Orient thing. But the more I delved into it, the more I came to have a deeper understanding of the, 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 the profundity of this medicine and this culture in general and the um, uh, way that its thinking is different to modern medicines. Um, of course, if, you, if all you have is science and if all you see is, is, is conventional standard medicine, then you tend to think, well, that's it. That is, that is medicine. And it's only when you dig uh, into the history of Chinese medicine and you dig into the theory of it uh, and you start to practice it, that you begin to see that um, although science is profound in its own way, the Chinese medicine explanatory model and clinical uh, model um, is actually a work of genius. It's a cultural treasure, I think. I mean, it's so rich, isn't it? The the way that different traditions describe their relationship with nature and health. Yes. And you're right to say that uh, Chinese culture in particular has got a a very specific way of articulating our, our um, relationship with how we eat and digest and sleep and uh, mm. thrive. So tell us more, Charlie, tell us more about the patterns in Chinese medicine. One, one, thing, I was, one thing I was interested in from my teenage years was uh, the Yi Jing, or the Classical Changes, which is a very ancient Chinese book, probably the oldest book uh, surviving into modern times from ancient China probably produced about 500 BC or so, but based on, on the folk traditions before that time. And I began to realize that what these Taoist originators of Chinese culture were doing were trying to understand 
the the complexity of the universe and they were trying to understand that they looked at nature and they saw things uh, all interweaving and interconnecting and they were looking for ways to understand that and they were ways they were looking for ways to try and make it simple to understand as well um, they did that by by uh, by inventing a kind of binary thinking which is really what the I Ching is about that's to say the medicine uh, and the whole thinking of Chinese philosophy was, was very yin yang it very much uh, is is this hot or is this cold is this going up when it should be going down or is it going down when it should be going up and um, so it was a very um, strategic approach to the understanding of nature it was a very rational uh, model for trying to understand the way the world works and originally that was uh, happening at a time of warfare in China. They had something like 250 years of continuous warfare between different states that now comprise modern China. And so the really clever people were employed by the government to try and stop everybody being boiled in oil by your neighbours. Um, and uh, when, when China unified in around 220 BC, um, those, those, all those brilliant people, brilliant strategic thinkers, uh, had nothing to do anymore. So they moved their attention from the biggest threat to life and limb at the time, which was um, being killed by an army, um, to the next biggest threat, which was to be killed by disease. So all those thinkers brilliant strategic thinkers of the Warring States period uh, began to move over to, to medicine and use the same strategic principles um, uh, that they applied to, to warfare. They began to apply these to, um, to medicine. So um, this is a different way of approaching the problem of, of health and disease than science, which came along quite a lot later and believed that um, you had to uh, look very closely at the physicality of the body. We had the anatomists, we had the biochemists, we had people, we had the the um, Louis Pasteur and the and the invention of the bug, all these things, which are all incredibly valuable. But they but they're but they're a materialistic thing. They're not very strategic. Um, simply naming every bit of gristle you can find in the body with Latin names <laughs> takes you so far, and it's really good for surgeons, but actually it doesn't take you that far with, with medicine um, or medical practice. It's useful for, for surgeons for some things. And so, so really we have two explanatory models that are doing different things that actually complement each other so well because they're coming at the problem from different directions. And, you know, what are some of these binary principles that you find so useful in your in your clinic? Well, I think one theme uh, is, is the digestive issue, isn't it? We were talking about digestion as a theme for the talks today. And um, it, it, once, if, once you put it in Chinese medicine terms, you go, oh, that's obvious, isn't it, really? But Chinese medicine says that if you have vomiting or nausea and digestive disturbances like that, that is the chi of the stomach going the wrong way. So we define what the correct direction for the chi of the stomach is, which is to go down. And uh, when we when we find somebody with nausea or vomiting or uh, reflux, we say that's the energy of the stomach going the wrong way. Now you might say, well, what do you mean by energy or what have you? That doesn't really matter very much. It's simply a description of the ish of what's going wrong 
that carries with it the understanding of what you need to do to make it go right. So what you need to do in that situation is to find interventions that make things go down, that make us, or that more specifically, that make the energy of the stomach descend instead of ascending. So in acupuncture, one of the commonest points for that is in the wrist, a point called neguan, which we, we say that the one function of that point is that it makes the chi of the stomach descend and in that way stops nausea and vomiting. When we look for uh, herbal substances that might be used for that, then when we find them, we say, well, that works because it's making the chi of the stomach go down. So a classic example of that uh, in Chinese medicine and I think in Western herbalism is the use of fresh ginger. Mm -hmm. So we say well, the property of fresh ginger is it makes the stomach go down. Now, mm -hmm. if we multiply that by a thousand times, taking every symptom possible in the body and des describing it in those terms of directionality or whether it's hot or cold, whether there's something missing or whether there's something there that shouldn't be there that needs to be cleared away. Uh, when we look in those terms, it actually turns out to be completely rational <laughs> and very strategic. Um, so that's... That's what I love about this is the, the way that when you train in it and you you learn all these principles, but actually going into the clinic, you find that it works perfectly well. It's a vehicle that drives very smoothly in, in clinical practice. And that's, of course, because it's been it's been developed over such a long time. It appears to me it's so scientific, isn't it? It's a, it's a yes. very clear, rational study of your you know, of your senses, observing, observing the yes. world and using your ability to taste and then understand a logical principle by which those flavors uh, may affect function in the body. And mm. it leads you to a very empowered position, I think, as an individual, if you can learn some of these um, deep insights that traditional yes. cultures have have not just discovered, but tested, time tested over many, many years and many, many generations that have validated these um, herbs for safety and efficacy and uh, yeah, functionality, really. So mm. I, I did bring along a bit of fresh ginger, actually, because I thought we'd have to have a look at a bit of a few herbs. And, um, you know, maybe it's, it's worth exploring. You know, there's a bit of a difference, isn't there, in Chinese medicine between fresh ginger and dry ginger and between between uh, Shenjiang, the, the fresh ginger, and Ganjiang, the right. dry ginger. Maybe that's a little example to talk about one of the, some of the nuance in, in Chinese medicine in relationship to this internal exterior hot yes. cold pattern. Yes, one thing that we describe, one way that we describe the body is in terms of internal and external. So is, is the problem on the interior of the body, uh, even if it's reflecting on the outside, it's maybe happening on the interior of the body, or is the problem happening on the exterior of the body, perhaps because of an interior problem? Um, and uh, with um, fresh ginger, fresh ginger is, is more yang. It actually uh, goes to the exterior of the body. So if you take a good, a strong dose of fresh ginger, it will bring you out in a bit of a sweat. Hmm. And obviously sweating happens on the exterior of the body. So fresh ginger um, is more prone to doing that than dried ginger. So... Uh, so we said, so one difference between fresh ginger and dry ginger is that dry ginger warms and moves the interior and particularly the, the, the digestive system and to some extent the lungs. Um, whereas fresh ginger uh, more goes to the exterior and the Chinese say releases the exterior or unties the exterior where things have become obstructed in the skin layers of the body. I think that's uh, 
so interesting the use of the language there, isn't it? Because as soon as you start talking about things from the interior and releasing the exterior yes. and wind trapped, it starts to feel more alien to our cultural background. Yes. And yet, um, what I've learned is through observing the nature of temperature, for example, and the sun on the ground and your body, mm. you, can, you can use this direct contact with nature to learn and study how to influence your own health and understand that you have a language for how to describe health. And that yes. has been a priceless gift to me in my, in my practice and in my, own, in my own health as well. Yes. I think that there's a tendency to just assume that because it's alternative medicine, it must be a little bit stupid or a little bit dim. Mm. Um, but firstly, I think we should say that all, all technical uh, professions have to have a, a specialist language. Mm -hmm. And what modern medicine did uh, in order to flag that it was using words in a special way, in a medical way, was to use Latin, to borrow Latin terms. Um, and actually those Latin terms, if we translate them into English, can start to make the medicine look a little silly too. If, for example... Um, the socket in the hip bone is called the acetabulum, which an, an acetabulum is is a is a device for holding vinegar at Roman banquets, and the word pelvis is is the uh, Latin for uh, wash basin. Uh, mm. So, so uh, the Chinese, of course, started to develop a technical language for what they did, but they couldn't access Latin. So what they did, they took words from the vernacular, words in ordinary language, and within their, within their profession gave them a special meaning. Um, so the words like wind or damp or cold or what have you were simply borrowings from normal language. But when we translate them, they lose some of that dignity. They lose some of the associations that were there in the first place. So I think we have to be quite careful. We have to be quite mature to, to not jump to conclusions. Physicists, physicists for example, um, use the word um, superstrings to define, to define some some cosmology, uh, f fundamental properties of matter, superstrings. I mean, if you translate, well, it is English. <laughs> what it sounds like they're being stupid, but because there's no string uh, flying around the universe. Um, I might be around my office, but there's very little <laughs> string flying around the universe. So I think this terminological question we should be, be we should guard against um, missing, misunderstanding it. You can't really use those terms unless you've spent some time actually learning what they mean and got them into your bones. Uh, this is one of the problems with it. It's about uh, it's having respect in a way and trying to deepen yes. one's understanding of another perspective. And I hope it actually being called an alternative medicine practitioner or even complementary medicine practitioner, I find a real pejorative and, a, and, a, and an inappropriate reflection of the, the expertise that all the practitioners that you have to go through training in the UK to be a, a qualified you know, Chinese herbalist or Western herbalist, etc. Um, it's so detailed and thorough and clinically professional that I think um, it's worthy of more respect, which yes. in a way is why Herbal Reality and the Herbcaster here and all the professional associations in the UK, etc., work to champion that cause. And there's something about this uh, translation of the language, isn't there, that can be feel so alien and be, as soon as you understand it, so empowering. Mm. And I 
I loved it in the article you wrote uh, that you titled Sweet and Sour um, okay. uh, uh, for Herbal Reality, the importance of taste and food energetics in, mm. in Chinese medicine. And I have always found that in clinic, helping people understand some of the ways that those flavors work can be a way that people can use that on a daily basis because we're all eating three times a day or, or, or you know, should be if, if we can. So um, the description of the flavors in, in Chinese medicine seems to be a, a further extension from that yin-yang dichotomy of hot, cold, damp, dry, etc. Charlie, and I, I wondered if it would be helpful to explore how some of that works, because that can also feel a bit arcane, can't it? That's right. It, 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 I think it's partly rooted in, in reality and real observation, and it's partly reality uh, feeding into the language. That's to say, if something is, um, is, is very bitter, um, then we say it's drying and it clears heat or whatever in Chinese medicine terms. But if something actually has that effect in practice and doesn't taste bitter, we'll still pretend it's bitter anyway. We'll label it as bitter because that's just a useful way of describing, a shorthand way of describing the properties. So it's quite pragmatic. I don't think that it's necessarily completely fixed. Some things that the Chinese say are sweet are not really sweet at all. Um, and it's simply because they were found to have tonic properties, for example, and so they were called sweet, even if they weren't. On the whole, they, the, 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 there is correspondence between tastes and, um, and effects, but it's not necessarily set in some. People think that the rule is the law that everybody follows and believes in, whereas the Chinese are more pragmatic than that. The, you know, the reality trumps the or feeds into the laws. Um, and I think it came out as a quote from some Chinese um, Chinese president once, uh, where he said, "Well, people accused him of." Um, of moving towards capitalist and open free market economy changes in the late 1980s. And he said, um, he said, well, it doesn't matter whether a cat is black or white uh, as long as it catches mice. And that's the that's an illustration of the Chinese pragmatism that has kind of always been there. So the rule follows reality rather than reality following the rule, I think. I like that uh, functionality that is there, basically. That's the intent, is for it to be useful in, in real life, the knowledge, yes. isn't it? And I, I love, I don't know many Chinese quotes, uh, Charlie, you'd have to forgive me, but, you know, this one, uh, yi bing tong zhe, tong bing yi zhe, where you've got, yes. you know, um, one disease uh, with the uh, different treatments, different disease, same treatment, basically. So um, maybe that's an area to explore as well, because I think it sums up the the framework and the worldview of, of uh, Chinese medicine so well when you can have two diseases I don't know if we had Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis or whatever you know they're two different clinical pathologies per se in, in Western practice but in TCM you would maybe um, uh, treat them differently all the same <laughs> yes I, I think I think cough is a really interesting one there's a there's a saying in Chinese medicine that uh, cough a patient walks through the door coughing, doctor's heart sinks. Because in, in modern medicine, a cough is almost one thing. Um, and actually, there are very few medicines for it, and there's very little attention given to it. Um, but in Chinese medicine, if we look up one of the standard textbooks, we'll find about 32 different types of cough. 
Um, and once again, once you think about it, it makes complete sense because some people have got a cough and they're coughing up gloops of phlegm um, and um, some people are coughing up gloops of white phlegm and others are coughing up gloops of yellow phlegm or green mm. and some people are completely dry and they're coughing up nothing at all. And the idea that you'd have one treatment for completely different situations, if you know, herbs can be drying or herbs can be moistening. And if you take somebody with a dry cough and you put those herbs for phlegm obstructing the lungs and give them to a patient, then you're going to make it worse. It's obvious to us in Chinese medicine that the treatment has got to fit the person. And this is really the problem. One of the difficulties, I think, with evidence-based medicine, which I support in many ways, but the problem with evidence-based medicine is that it takes these disease labels and it looks to have a treatment that is going to work for that disease label, which is ridiculous in many ways if we if we talk about back pain there are so many trials into back pain does this work for back pain does acupuncture work for back pain well there's lots of different sorts of back pain you can't have a clinical trial where you where, where your subject group are all uh, different they're all different people with different problems you can't take a thousand of them and expect to average it all out and come out with something that's good for everybody um it's uh, from a chinese medicine point of view that looks a bit daft really it does sound very simple when you put it like that, doesn't it, in a way that it's just not specific. Don't tell anybody, but uh, the way I see it, the way I understand folk medicine is that folk medicine is a, is a simple stimulus-response medicine where you take a symptom and you search for something to make that symptom go away. When there's very little intervening diagnostic process or very inter little intervening theory to join the two together. And an awful lot of what looks like modern medicine or what modern medicine looks like seems to look like folk medicine because it so often doesn't really look strategically at understanding what is happening in the person in front of you. And this is a major problem. I think this is part of the crisis of modern medicine. And I don't want to knock modern medicine because I love science and I love and I respect the people in it. And I respect the whole thing. But there's something just uh, there's been a wrong turn somewhere. Yeah, it doesn't feel like it's as integrated, perhaps, with all the opportunities for helping support people's health that yes. we, we would like to see. Obviously, we're all greatly appreciative of many aspects of uh, modern medicine. And uh, uh, it just seems there is a, a lack of inclusion for some of these other modalities that have got long traditions of safe an effective practice that would be, um, you know, more affordable potentially and definitely contribute towards less suffering and discomfort for, for people. So what do you think about the uh, potential inclusion of you know, traditional medicine, should we call it, in, in a wider integrative medicine complex? Uh, because I've seen you talk about uh, herbal medicine in China and how it is integrated within lots of uh, um, uh, modern clinical methods. And yeah, just what do you think about that in the UK? You've, you've seen the whole community change over your, your career, probably. We'd love to, how do you, what do you think about the future? I think that, I think that modern medicine uh, is still arrogant enough to believe that it holds the higher ground, has a true grasp on medicine, has a true grasp on science and reality. And therefore the, 
at the moment the relationship is always unequal. And so yeah. I think that if we had more integration of Chinese medicine into, into conventional care, then there would be real pressures for us to dance to the tune of modern medicine, which I think mm. would lead to a kind of bastardization of the, or loss of the value of the tradition. So, but, you know, I think that there are other examples in medicine where you let people get on with it and you let them have their own explanatory model. So in psychiatry, for example, there are psychiatrists who do all the psychiatry stuff and they've got their own terminology. And, you know, if a patient needs it, you throw them to, yes. the, to the psychiatrist, so to speak. And you don't necessarily critique the, the explanatory model, the diagnostic models that they're using. Um, and the same with physiotherapy. I mean, I think that the, uh, if a general practitioner doctor refers to a physio, they are trusting in that person to have the training and the explanatory model that is going to help the patient without necessarily having studied it or knowing it themselves. So there's, it's about the relationship, about the power relationship and the respect that should exist between professions. So I wouldn't see complete integration as being very easy. I think it would be it would be the, uh, uh, it would have to start from a position of recognizing um, the um, the seriousness of intent and the seriousness of the, the explanatory model that uh, practitioners are using, and simply say have a Chinese medicine service or an acupuncture mm. service where you respect the people uh, doing it. I, I like your, I don't know if you want to call it a modular approach in a way, where there's a sort of plugins, but the, the traditions are respected in their own right. I like, I like that a lot. Yes, I mean, that, that's essentially what happens in China, uh, is that you have Chinese medicine hospitals that are big modern hospitals with scanners and labs, blood labs and what have you, and you have Western medicine hospitals. And there are some people in the Western medicine hospitals who practice some level of Chinese medicine, and there's obviously a lot of understanding of biomedicine, modern medicine, okay. in the traditional hospitals. So there is that overlap, but simply having them completely together in a hospital, I think is just going to lead to fisticuffs or something yeah. at the moment. <laughs> But it is interesting when you think about there are what, hundreds of millions of prescriptions and, and uh, treatments going on in China using plants and acupuncture as a sort of primary modality. And here yes. we're in here we're in virtually I don't want to say zero land because there's a there is a strong herbal tradition in the UK, but it, in terms of it not being supported. So I just wonder, coming back to the beauty of Chinese medicine and. You started us off in, in the, with the, uh, back in 500 BC and we've progressed forwards. How do you use some of these principles in, in practice, really? You know, when you're, when you're seeing somebody, how do you bring some of these to life, whether that's in the diagnosis or, or if you want to talk a bit about how you put a prescription together, something like that? Okay. Uh, in the early 90s, we had a boom in interest in Chinese herbal medicine for skin diseases and particularly eczema. And this came out of uh, research at the Great Ormond Street Hospital for children, um, where children were treated successfully with Chinese herbal medicine by a Chinese doctor. So this led to... Um, it forced me to be able to up my game in terms of understanding Chinese medicine dermatology. Um, and I saw I was prescribing between three and five tons of Chinese herbs a year on dermatology for over 10 years. Um, so I got a lot of experience with that. But it's interesting, the process, because eczema is, is, is one of those things. It's another of those single label 
things in modern medicine. Maybe you call it dermatitis, maybe you call it eczema, maybe you split it into atopic or whatever. But um, in Chinese medicine terms, we look very closely at the lesions. We look at where they are and we are looking um, to see the uh, to see rashiness, if it's if it's all tiny dots, very very itchy, um, then that uh, indicates wind from a Chinese medicine point of view. Uh, and again, that just means that it would make sense to use herbs that have uh, that traditionally are used for expelling wind from the exterior. Some of the research into the pharmacology of those herbs has found that they have antihistamine effects and other effects as well. So I'm looking at the skin of a patient with eczema and I'm looking to see how dry it is because that's telling me whether there's sufficient nourishment getting to the skin. Uh, I'm looking at how weepy it is because if it's weepy, I'm going to be using herbs from the damp or the damp heat category in Chinese medicine terms. We're looking at how red it is and also perhaps even touching to feel how hot it is because that's giving an indication of the heat. So actually what we're doing is tailoring, factoring all those things in together um, and, uh, and formulating a prescription that is appropriate to that, that matches that as exactly as, as you can. And that's, that's what I mean by strategic. That's a really strategic approach. It's looking at the battle landscape. It's mm. looking at the, the various armaments and the various battles going on. And it's making a response that strategically matches the, the patient's situation. Uh, and that is that, that makes the practice of this medicine intrinsically uh, enthralling because because it actually you, you it's like being a Sherlock Holmes you know you've got a patient in front of you you're looking at the footprints in the flower bed you're looking for the lead pipe in the, in the <laughs> drawing room or whatever um, you're actually taking all the clues you can find about that patient and not only just looking at the skin but you would look at the digestion for example you look wider to that person's general physiology uh, if only because uh, the herbs are going to have to go through the person's digestion, and that's going to colour strategically colour the way that you approach your treatment as well. You don't want to give herbs that are going to be very effective for the skin, but are going to have a terrible effect on your digestive system uh, because they're too heavy. Um, and of course, manifestations on the skin can be uh, simply uh, illustrating or, or manifesting something going on inside. Uh, so we have to look further at sleep patterns, at stress and all those other things and perhaps include that in the um, in the dis designing of a prescription. So that's a bit like going to a bespoke tailor's uh, and having a suit made that incorporates all your bumps and, and proclivities uh, so that it exactly fits you. It's a little bit like that. So that is just inherently very satisfying a thing to do with one's life. Um, especially if it works, you know, it's even more satisfying. <laughs> well, it, it just sounds so appealing, doesn't it, to have a, um, um, a an expert to uh, be a detective in helping you tease out what are some of the challenges in your own health and then be able to, like, map a blueprint is sometimes how I see it, whether, you know, in that mm. person, if they've got a, say, a preponderance yes. about eczema of heat and damp, let's say, yes. you can then find a, a diet that helps to mitigate the heat and damp. You can find a lifestyle to a certain yes. degree, maybe with, with some people you can help there and you can implement practices. And then of course you can use the, this refined knowledge of this understanding of these 
special plants in our in our diet, really, in, a, in yes. our medicine chest, um, where you're just using pretty small amounts in comparison to what we eat in terms of food, but where they're, mm. they're more potent. And, yes. you know, there's this beautiful way of making a, a prescription in Chinese medicine, not just beautiful, but strategic and a functional, intelligent way of doing it. And, and that would be interesting to talk about. Once you've done your detective work and uh, you've diagnosed the, the, the person and, and their particular expression of that pattern, what happens then? Well, for one thing, you want to try and work out what the cause is. So some of the earliest classics of Chinese medicine said um, to treat disease, seek the root. Uh, and so, you know, eczema can have uh, different roots. Almost any condition can have different causalities. And one has to, if one can, delve into that and try and work out what's brought it on because if the patient is still doing something that's, that's causing the problem then it's going to interfere with treatment the strategies that we have to come up with when we've analyzed the patient is to come up with a treatment plan and that also includes some sense of evolve the way things evolve through time so we might start off doing one thing uh, with a skin condition getting the fire brigade out and saying well first of all we've got to get this under control because you're going crazy with the itching and the burning and the cracking and all these things but then um there's a you know from experience and from how the tradition teaches you that the way that things will progress over time and that you will change the emphasis of the treatment um, week by week or month by month depending on the particular problem and that's another aspect of the strategy it's not just a momentary diagnosis thing it's actually setting it in a, in a wider context of time um, so that's that's something that's not always understood by patients. They think they quite often come just they think that I'm going to come once. You're going to give me something. It's either going to work or it's going to not work. Whereas, whereas actually, Chinese medicine is a little bit like three-dimensional chess. You know, you you when the patients there in front of you it's like having the chessboard of life in front of you and you're trying to work where, where, where all the pieces are on the board so that you can make the move and then you want to see what happens uh, hopefully it's the right things that happen and then you can make different moves as the as the thing progresses and people don't understand always the complexity of the process uh, or the sheer size of a brain that you need to be able to operate this medicine. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've obviously got one of those, Charlie. So, uh, yeah, it, I suppose people are so used to just being given a, a, you know, a painkiller or a steroid or anti-inflammatory, and, yes. and that's sort of yes. often the treatment. So, I mean, maybe give us a flavour of a formula or something like that for, I mean, like, what, what might that look like? Well... People discovered ginseng a long time ago, and they discovered that this had uh, beneficial properties in terms of strengthening you, strengthening you, and we now talk about those being adaptogenic properties as well. But then with actual use, it was found that people, when, when their spleen chi is deficient, sorry, um, which is what, China, what, what one thing that ginseng does is to strengthen your spleen chi. But quite often people who've had that for a long time will start to get dampness accumulating and that, that obstructs the movement of chi. So when you put, it's like, 
it's like having a dam and you've got a reservoir with a low level of uh, fluid in it and you you raise the level of the fluid you're simply going to push against the obstruction so dampness clogs things up and stops things from moving so they found in chinese medicine that if you just gave uh, a strong chi tonic energy tonic like um, like ginseng, that it, in some people it would cause bloating and what have you. So they then thought, well, we have to be more strategic in our approach. So a classic Chinese herb prescription called the Four Gentlemen adds um, herbs that help uh, help transform fluids and, and what have you. If that goes a little bit further, those fluids in Chinese medicine terms can turn into phlegm, in which case you take that that that, that Four Gentlemen prescription that's got ginseng in it but then it's got other things to to counteract um the th other things that go along with that uh, pathological change then you get phlegm forming so then there's a six gentleman prescription which includes things that that help transform phlegm and mucus uh, that, that clog things up so um uh, a chinese herb prescription is a recipe that's handed down it's a recipe that's been that's been um, tried and tested a little bit in a Darwinian kind of fashion, survival of the fittest. That you know, I think in the historical record there are something like seventy or eighty thousand named Chinese herb prescriptions for specific situations. Um, but we don't use, we don't learn them all. <laughs> we learn the top three hundred, say, um, the ones that have survived through time for being safe and effective when you use them properly. Well, I love the idea in Chinese medicine that the that, that, uh, formula is, is like an idea, isn't it, in a way? Yes. That it, there is a, a baseline recipe, should we say, for you know, how, right. do you, how do you bake bread? But you know, yes. if you want to make bread with seeds in it or with crisscrosses on the top or whatever, there are various variations. And it's that level of detail and specificity to help um, make it so personal that I think mm. is one of the real... Um, joys of being a practitioner but also one of the joys of being a patient because you've got a uh, very finely tuned and specific yes. uh, treatment being made for you and yes I, I of course because i'm enthralled by the highest kind of manifestation of this medicine i think we have to forget that it doesn't all have to be that high you know it can actually you can simply take a skin problem and put some cream on it you know some chinese herbal thing on it or something and that's okay too i think that we have to be careful not to slip into some kind of um um over celebration of, of of the highest level of practice because that too can be inappropriate sometimes sometimes it's appropriate to just do something symptomatic sometimes it's appropriate just to do something simple um i think um you know just stopping somebody from bleeding uh, can be a good thing to do sometimes, even if you're not delving into the deepest depths of, uh, mm. of a person's medical history. Um, so I don't want to um, leave out, I don't want to be disparaging to, to folk medicine. I mentioned folk medicine before, and I hope that didn't seem disparaging because actually there's a, there's a, an enormous value in so many of the things from, from South America or Chinese folk medicine as well. We had med folk medicine had two medicines in China. We had folk medicine for the ordinary people and classical Chinese medicine for the for the hoi polloi. Um, so, um, so, and I, I personally think that simple remedies have a value as well and shouldn't be disparaged. 
but obviously what I love doing best most of all is the, uh, is, is the more complicated stuff. Beautiful. Uh, that's really lovely, Charlie, what you said there. And um, in a way, are we, you know, are we lacking folk medicine anymore over in our culture? And it, you know, it serves such an important part in daily self-care and the, and the wisdom of the caring you know, family space. I wonder if there's some final tips you might have that, of general lifestyle advice that would you know, be this interface between folk medicine and the higher echelons, as you put it, of clinical medicine. What, what could you know, some of the people listening, what can they adopt in their day to day? Some of the main principles you might teach some of your clients? Well, I think there's. I think we, you could draw a short list of um, of uh, of Chinese herbs for simple simple usage. Um, the Chinese, your Chinese mother-in-law, if you were coming down with a cold and sniffles, would make a a, a soup out of uh, spring onions and ginger. So that just makes you sweat a little bit and throw it off, especially if you do that just before going to bed. Mm. Um, there are quite a few things. The use of ginger, fresh ginger for nausea and sickness is a good one um, we have a few folk remedies in Chinese medicine too that we can uh, adopt the Ch Chinese would use um, melons for, for clearing heat for example um, a fresh melon or watermelon in particular and the pharmaco there's pharmacology on watermelon that shows it has powerful anti-inflammatory effects um, as well so I don't know there's a book to be written I think really yeah. on that. Um, I think there is isn't there in terms of you know, because these principles that we've been talking about, and some of them, you know, might seem abstract or distant to some people, because they're so tangible, I feel like it's something that can be um, easily learned and yes. becomes a very valuable thing to learn in your life. And that you don't actually need to go and see a Chinese herbal medicine practitioner because you're ill. There is actually the opportunity to go and see someone to get, a, you know, a balanced diagnosis of what some of your patterns might be and then what mm. some of the dietary and lifestyle behaviors that might be seen as you could call it preventative medicine or you could call it optimizing life uh practices um but i i, I think that's one of the that would be one of the main reasons that i'd recommend people go and see chinese herbal medicine practitioners because yes. of the, the 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 value that that gives you of course if you've got something wrong with you as well i think that would probably be a good idea as well but um, in pursuing yeah, help. I don't know whether you've heard of the concept of, of Wu Wei in Chinese, which is translated as not doing. And when you're 19 or 17 or something, uh, that means lying in bed, eating crisps and playing on your laptop. Uh, Mum, <laughs> I'm doing Wu Wei, I'm a Taoist, you know. <laughs> um, and actually, I think my understanding, having looked at the earliest times in China with these uh, scholars and, and um, military strategists is that, that what was most valued was their ability to to see into the future by spot, spot, spotting things going round, going wrong before anybody noticed them and that was that was an important thing in government you wanted to see the subtler signs of breakdown of, of social loss of social cohesion or uprisings or what have you before anybody else had noticed it mm. at a time when the tiniest intervention could put it right with nobody even noticing that, that, they did, that you'd even done it in a way. And that's actually an important understanding of, of Wu Wei. It doesn't mean not doing stuff and just letting, letting the Tao happen. It actually also means 
being able to be so sensitive and so uh, have so much acuity in your mind that's, that you polish by 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 practices that you do um, that you can see things much earlier and uh, that's been a joy to me in my clinical practice when I sometimes see patients who I can see something going wrong uh, that might play out over the following few years and I treat it um, without telling them, because I don't want to scare them, and I will, t- I will tell them. I will say, listen, I think as I said, this like to do this with you for a few months. Trust me, this would be a good thing to do. To give one example, I had a chap in his mid seventies who I'd been treating. I'd been um, treating his wife for twenty five years, and he would come along, come along occasionally. But I hadn't seen him for two or three years, and he turned up. And because I hadn't seen him, the change was quite dramatic. I could see his face, his complexion had gone ruddy. Um, uh, I could see that his his ankles were now puffy and that he'd got uh, you know, some, some signs of uh, cardiovascular deterioration. So I twisted his arm. I said, I want to give you Chinese herbs for a few months and see what happens. And that was five or six years ago he still comes and actually I only did it for a few months I didn't tell him what I was worried about and he's still okay he's still okay and that's so mm-hmm. satisfying uh, he doesn't know what I did I didn't tell him um, and that's that's part of the power of Chinese medicine I can't do that all the time but sometimes you can just you just know that you're that somebody's on a pathway that is going to going to unfold in a negative uh, way over years and you can actually circumvent that sometimes mm. oh that's just fantastic to hear I, I know in india there's this theme of digging a well before you're thirsty yes i'm sure there's that's a the same thing in that regard yes. as well. yeah 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 and, uh, how we can prepare beforehand and learn learn those principles um well you, you mentioned mm. a you know cardiovascular issue there and i I picked a few herbs before we uh, were going to get together. This is um, Shanja. Shanja, which is yes. Crotagus, uh, uh one of the Crotagus species, Pinitifada, I think it is. And yeah. it's much bigger than the European. That's truthful. right, yes, yes. So there, there is, you know, we, we think of these traditions as being separate to each other um, in, in many ways, but, the you know, the human heritage and our desire to alleviate suffering and to promote health means that many... Herbs appear in different cultures and are used in similar ways, like um, dandelion, for example, yes, or yes. Uh, motherwort is another one that yes. is uh, yes. means healing mother, I think, in yes. Chinese, and we have motherwort. And I think hawthornberry is interesting. Yeah. There's an interesting one, uh, psyllium seeds, um, plantain seeds, mm-hmm. which I think have the same name in Chinese as they have in Western herbalism, or one of the Western herbalism names. In Chinese, they're called before the cart seeds, or something like that, which is a strange thing to call a plant, the seeds. But I think, I've forgotten what the Western equivalent is now, but it's a, it always says this means the same thing. Um, oh, right, psyllium. I'm not sure what that is, but I wonder why it's called before the cart seed. Is that because all the husks would get blown in front of the cart? I decided that if your cart got stuck in the mud, that if you took handfuls of this kind of gritty, gritty seed, uh, that it would help you kind of get traction again. Um, But I'm not sure. Yeah. Anyway, there's lots of um, similarities 
and harmony between these uh, cultures in you know Western herbalism, Ayurveda, and Chinese medicine. I mean, yeah. the interface between China and India in terms of exchanging ideas and um, materia medica. There are there are just so many uh, similar herbs that are used uh, in many similar ways that this this interchange is something that we're all carrying on now in a way we're all carrying on sharing and uh, you know obviously yes. privileged to be yeah. part of that tradition but I feel that yes. there is a growth in awareness uh, in our society today about how can people be you know more empowered about how they look after their health naturally and I think it's a it's a great time for all, all traditional uh, medical systems to sort of stand up and champion what they've believed in and been teaching all these years which is not just clinical treatment with herbs, but it's also nutrition and diet, and it's also lifestyle, and also you know psychology and you know mental well-being as well. And and these are contained so well in these traditional systems that um, you get so much out of seeing a seeing a practitioner. Charlie, it was just brilliant to speak with you. Thank you so much for sharing your insight and wisdom that you've learned over all these years, caring and supporting people's health. So uh, just thank you so much. I've just so enjoyed the conversation. Well, thank you for having me, Sebastian. Thank you very much. I mean, I, I must say I admire the work that you're doing, uh, A, to, to unify the different herbal traditions and also the effort and time and effort you're putting in to uh, giving these professions a bit of a boost with the with your efforts so uh, <laughs> strength to you and uh, success to you uh, in, in all that you're doing thank you thank you for inviting me it's a pleasure charlie thank you so much all right take care okay until we meet again <laughs> i look forward to that you've been listening to the herbcast the podcast from herbal reality we hope you enjoyed this episode if so perhaps you'd like to leave us a rating that would really help us to spread our message for herbal health. We hope you'll join us again for the next episode. And in the meantime, if you'd like a few more herbal insights from us, do have a look at herbalreality.com. We'll learn more from us via Instagram, where we're at herbal.reality. And we're on Twitter and Facebook too. We'll be back with another episode of The Herbcast soon. Thanks for joining. Thank you.